everyone, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 1. We're going, we're going to start with verse 57 and go to verse 80 and finish up the chapter. The two incidents we're going to deal with in this audio are the naming of John the Baptist and Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, Zacharias's prophecy about John the Baptist, but mostly about Jesus. So let's start with verse 57 in chapter 1 of Luke. Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered. This is three months after Mary had come to visit her, sung the Magnificat, and then gone back to Nazareth. Mary went back to Nazareth just about this time, right before Elizabeth had John the Baptist. And she, Elizabeth, brought forth a son, and her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. Now this was a custom in Israel that neighbors and cousins and friends would come to the circumcision ceremony. It was also customary that the baby was named on that day of circumcision. The eighth day was prescribed by law. I've read somewhere it's because a baby's blood will coagulate quicker on the eighth day, having produced enough vitamin K to keep him from bleeding like a stuck pig if he got circumcised earlier than that. So this is all very Jewish here. And so the neighbors named him Zacharias after his father. Verse 60, And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he shall be called John. Now, why did Elizabeth say that? Well, because if you recall the story, Zacharias had been confronted by the angel Gabriel when Zacharias was performing his priestly incense duties in the holy place. Gabriel said, you're going to have a son, you're going to call him John. John means his grace is with us, something to that effect. His name's going to mean something, it's just not going to be Zacharias. And because Zacharias expressed a little bit of doubt, he says, how can I have a baby? We're old. My wife is stricken in age. And Gabriel said, okay, bam, going to make you dumb. Not deaf now, but dumb. You can't talk because you showed a lack of faith there, and but you're going to call the baby John. So Zacharias listens, I'm sure, went to talk to Elizabeth after that, told Elizabeth the whole story because he couldn't, couldn't talk now. So when I say told, he wrote it down on a tablet just like he did here. I'm sure that's how he communicated with, with Elizabeth. And so Elizabeth, when she sees her cousins and neighbors trying to name the baby Zacharias, she re- knows what Zacharias has told her, and she says, hold it, hold it, hold it. We're going to name this baby John, like the angel said. Verse 61, and they, that's the cousins and neighbors, said unto her, there is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. The appeal to the head of the household here to solve this little controversy. Now, it's interesting they made signs to Zacharias. That must have been irritating to Zacharias. He wasn't deaf. He just couldn't talk. But he wasn't deaf. He could hear. They could have talked to him. But at any rate, verse 63, he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. The Holman Christian Study Bible in the translation makes a separate little space here and, and draws a rectangular box in the text and then puts his name is John in the middle of the text, like they're trying to imitate the tablet, which I thought was an interesting way to translate a verse in a Bible. But at any rate, Zacharias makes it very clear his name is John. And they marveled all. They marveled. They, why did they marvel? Well, because people usually name their kids after their father. And why? Well, there's nobody named John. What in the world are you doing? 
Verse 64, and his mouth was opened immediately. That's Zacharias's mouth, his tongue loosed, and he spoke and praised God. Well, he was struck dumb because of lack of faith. And when he showed his faith and obedience by agreeing with Gabriel that the son should be named John, immediately his mouth was open. Lack of faith closed his mouth, made him dumb. Faith opened his mouth. And you notice when he spoke, he didn't complain about being dumb. The first thing he did was he praised God. He was a righteous man. Verse 65, And fear came on all that dwelt around about them, and all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. That's in the stomping grounds of John the Baptist in his unnamed town outside of Jerusalem in the hill country there around Judea. Verse 66, And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, the sayings, the news laid it up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord is with him. So everybody, they had some supernatural visitation. Gabriel, and then Zacharias told about what Gabriel said, and then they obeyed, and then all the relatives knew that, hey, this is something special here. And John the Baptist was indeed something special. Let me emphasize again Zacharias's faith. Note the certainty, the finality. His name is John. In other words, Quit this argument. The argument's over. His name is John. No wavering, no doubting, perfect obedience this time. Zacharias had a second chance at faith. Now, Zacharias, having spoken words of faith, now speaks words of God. He prophesies. And this is a remarkable prophecy, as we'll see, as we'll see here in verses 67 through 80. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost, starting in verse 67, filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied. Now, this is just like Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost when the baby John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb when Mary showed up, filled with the Holy Ghost. And I made, a, in the last audio, made a distinction there between being filled with the Holy Spirit by asking for it as an intentional thing, like Paul in Acts 9, like the disciples waiting in the upper room at Pentecost in Acts 2, where that word filled is used. But then the word filled with the Holy Spirit is used, I think, eight other times. I did a word search on this. Eight other times where it just happened, where the Holy Spirit just overflowed people in the course of their obedient life. And then just, and they just burst out in, either in prophecy. And sometimes it's not prophecy, like in Ephesians 5, 18, be filled with the Holy Spirit and don't be drunk with wine. That's not, that's, that doesn't act like a one-time intentional event. It's actually like lead a life of sanctification. Don't go out and specifically look one time to pray like Ananias prayed for Paul. So I think there's a distinction there. The apostles in Acts chapter 4, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, when they went out to preach the gospel, they didn't say, Jesus, fill us with the Holy Spirit so we can preach the gospel. They just went out and preached it, and then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. How about Stephen, the martyr? He was filled with the Holy Spirit as, it, when he, as he was being crucified, as, excuse me, as he was being stoned, executed. He didn't say, well, God, it's time for me to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He just was filled with the Holy Spirit. So I think there's a difference. And I think this happened here. The Holy Spirit just came on Zacharias, and he prophesied, saying, as verse 67 says, 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Now, redemption means to buy someone out of slavery. Israel was in slavery. And we wonder whether Zacharias was thinking the political slavery that Israel had with Rome, or was he talking about spiritual redemption? being bought out of their slavery to sin. Well, as we go through this prophecy, we'll see it's the latter. He's talking about remission of sins, 
salvation, holiness, righteousness. Talk about spiritual redemption. Now, he might have that, had, a, had the idea of political redemption, too. I don't know. But his main focus here is on spiritual redemption. For he hath visited and redeemed his people. Now, notice that hasn't happened yet because Jesus hasn't been born yet. But he's so sure, the Holy Spirit is so sure in this prophecy that the future is spoken of as if it's already happened. Like the Golden State Warriors have won the Western Conference Finals. They haven't actually won it yet. They're up three to nothing. They're clobbering everybody. They're going to win it. But we say they've won it even though they haven't technically won it yet. So, same thing here. Jesus has redeemed his people even though he hasn't been there yet. Notice also that Zacharias spends more time bragging about Jesus than he does his own son, which shows how humble he was, how spiritual he was. Verse 69. And he, that is the Lord God of Israel, hath raised up a horn of salvation. A horn, of course, is the strongest part of an animal. It's the, the working end of the animal. It's what gets the job done. So a horn of salvation means strength to save us. Salvation, of course, means to deliver us in the house of his servant David. Of course, that fits in with the well-known idea that the Messiah was going to come from the house of David. And that, of course, came from the well-known prophecy of Nathan in 2 Samuel 7:12, which I'll read now because it's so famous. Nathan says to David, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, thy offspring after thee, which is, of course, Jesus, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. That will be Jesus. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Let me skip down to verse 2 Samuel 7, verse 15. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So the son of David was known to be the Messiah because of that famous prophecy, and all Israel knew that. And so Zacharias is predicting the arrival of the Messiah. And by the way, this prophecy was the first one that's given in 400 years. Malachi, ironically, the last two verses of Malachi, who was the last of the minor prophets, who was the last prophet before the 400 years of silence in the intertestamental period, the last two verses of Malachi prophesied about John the Baptist. Someone in the spirit of Elijah is going to come and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. I was talking about John the Baptist, and it's ironic. We finished the Old Testament with a prophecy about John the Baptist, and now we start the New Testament with a prophecy by the father of John the Baptist. Verse 70, Luke 1, as he spoke, that's the Lord God of Israel, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, like Nathan, the one we just saw, Isaiah would be one too, which have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, their salvation. There's political salvation here. The ideas kind of mixed together. 72, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. So here in verses 71 and 72, Zechariah prophesies of salvation and mercy to, mercy to come from the Messiah. Those are the two characteristics of Jesus' kingdom. Now the promise that was made to the father, the oath. Did I read verse 73? No, I didn't. Let me read that now. Let me start back with verse 72. The, uh, the, the words that God gave to his holy prophets, verse 72, to perform the mercy performance to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, 
that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hands of hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. That's referring to the famous Abrahamic promises. I always remember those by L.O.B. like a tennis lob shot. Land, offspring, and blessing. And this is this is classic, how can I say this, classic theological study as you, as you see how the Old Testament fits back in with the promises of Abraham. Genesis 15 is where it starts. God promises Abraham a, a land, verses 18, unto thy seed I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, which of course was fulfilled unto Solomon. And then in Genesis 17, the people is numerous, this is the offspring, people as numerous as the stars of heaven. Genesis 17, I will make thee a father of many nations in verse 4. I will make nations of thee and kings shall come out of thee in verse 6 and so forth. And then another prophecy, which I don't have the site to right here, uh, uh, Abraham will be a blessing to the nations. These are famous. I'm not going to go into detail here. By the way, I've got a YouTube series on New Covenant Theology in which I go into great detail of those land promises. You can check that out on YouTube. If you want some good theology, how, to, how the Old Testament and New Testament r relate together. But at any rate, here, Zacharias is referring to that famous promise to Abraham, the Abrahamic promises, the promises, the promise of the Father, the promise of God to Abraham. Now, verse 75, Zacharias continues, in holiness and righteousness before him. Uh, let me back up here. Let's see, 74. The words from the the, uh, the prophets, verse 74, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So this is what the promise to Abraham was, an everlasting kingdom. And there's going to be salvation. There's going to be holiness and righteousness. Now, holiness, of course, means separation from God, excuse me, separation from the world and dedication to God. Holiness means separation. That's why all of Leviticus is about separation. The priest can't go here, and the women can't go here, and the men can't go there, and the only the high priest can go there. It's all about separation. That's what holiness means. We're separate from God. We're so sinful we have to be separate from God. So, uh, But then we get saved, and we uh, get dedicated to God. We're consecrated to God and separate from the world. So holiness means separation from the world and consecration to God. Righteousness can mean two things. It can be legal righteousness, which means that, oh, I should say, uh, yeah, a righteousness according to the Old Testament law. You did things externally according to the law. And then it can mean forensic righteousness where we're right before God, where we're perfect. Not even one little sin do we commit. The first kind of righteousness is what I call civic righteousness. You know, the good people, the Qantas Club people, the people in your hometown that, you know, kind of the pillars of the community. They don't go out and run out on their wives, but they're still sinners. Forensic righteousness means you can take a criminal on death row and he confesses his horrible sins and then Jesus washes him clean and he is legally forensically righteous before God. That's the other kind of righteousness. At any rate, what Zacharias I think is talking about here in holiness and righteousness means, by golly, we're made righteous legally before God because of what Christ did for all the days of our life. Verse 76, and thou child, talking about now John the Baptist. He's speaking to his mother's, to his wife's stomach, wife's womb. And thou, excuse me, no, he's not. The baby's eight days old. He's speaking to the little baby. And thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. The highest, of course, is God. And, of course, John the Baptist is famous for being the one who made the way straight for the Lord. He prepared the way of the Lord. 
Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. And that salvation there is talking about spiritual salvation, remission of their sins, the putting away of your sins. That's what Jesus, John the Baptist is going to give knowledge of that by telling people about Jesus who's going to actually do it, take away our sins. Verse 78, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. Now that day spring from on high is referring to Jesus. The day spring is the rising of the sun in the morning, just like. The gospel of Jesus came from heaven, just like the light comes from heaven in the morning. So the gospel comes from heaven when Jesus arrives on the scene. A great metaphor there. Great metaphor there. Verse 79, he mentions the opposite of the day spring is darkness and death. He says, the day spring on high hath visited us, verse 79, to give light to them that sit in darkness and the shadow of death. And that is the perfect description of sinners who have not receive the light of Jesus. We are all sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. We are just waiting to die. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, and if anybody doesn't believe that, they are a fool. All they got to do is read the news every day about how people screw their lives up. Talk to your friends. Talk to your neighbors. Look at yourself. Talk to yourself. Talk to your wife. Talk to your husband. We all live in sin, and life is one constant battle, one trial after another because of our sin. We are waiting to die, and Jesus arises in our life and gives us hope and gives us life. And that's why Christians hold on to the end, because they know the hope that has been placed in their heart. Despite all the problems, all the persecutions, all the sins, all the failures that Christians might experience, they know that there is no hope for anybody. But in Jesus, the day spring who has appeared from on high, the dawn, the light of dawn that appears from on high. And then the verse 79, it says that this day spring from on high will guide our feet into the way of peace. Peace means no, we're no longer an enemy with God. Paul in Romans says that we're an enemy of God before we get saved. And now we have peace with God, which means we're no longer fighting him because now he is our friend. The friend that we are now friends of God in various scriptures. I forgot the exact sites. Verse 80, as the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the, excuse me, and the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts to the day of his showing unto Israel. And so John the Baptist disappeared. Nobody heard about him anymore. All the talk died down. All the excited messianic fervor was dissipated as John was out there waiting his time. What was he doing in the deserts? God was preparing him. If God wants to prepare you as a prophet, by golly, you're going to have to go into the desert for some desert training, boot camp. Anybody that has ever done anything for Jesus will know this. It ain't as easy as you think it's going to be, and you have got to be trained. You have got to go through Paris Island like you're a Marine, which from all the Marines I've ever talked to who've been to Paris Island, South Carolina, they say it's absolute hell. Well... I'm sure it wasn't pleasant for John the Baptist in the desert. He had no company. He ate wild locusts for food, ate wild honey. But he was prepared all right, and he was the greatest prophet of the New Testament until Jesus came along. Now let me summarize Zacharias' prophecy about the kingdom of God that's coming. He mentions redemption in verse 68, chapter 1 of Luke. He mentions salvation in verses 69, 71, and 77. He mentions mercy in verse 72, holiness in verse 75, righteousness in verse 75, remission of sins in verse 77, and peace in verse 79. That's the kingdom of God all in one prophecy. 
And that Zechariah's prophecy seems to me to be overlooked. I don't hear people talking about it too much in Christian circles, but it really is an amazing, remarkable promise. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I've finished Luke chapter 1. We'll start with Luke chapter 2 next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.